0: So 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 through 17 as y'all know says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So one reason that we know that the Bible is God's word is because we see the amazing harmony and unity between its books. We see an amazing harmony in the way that the authors have come together to write under the one great author, which is God. And it has amazing unity in its book. It would be very unlike any of us trying to compile a book. Imagine that we all got together and we decide to write a book as Impact Youth Group. And we decide to write on doctrines such as life after death. Decided to write on how the world was created, uh, why, how you should live your life, and we all took our different viewpoints and put them all together. You'd have a lot of different viewpoints. And most likely you'd have a lot of different contradictions and errors. Because as we all try to you know, form one thought, it's going to have 80 different opinions and 80 different thoughts and arguments and disputes. But the Bible is made of 66 books written uh, written by over 40 different authors from different cultural backgrounds over the span of 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages. And yet, as we'll find out tonight, it does not have any errors or contradictions. You've probably heard it said before, if someone asks you um, or someone tells you, hey, there's contradictions in the Bible. The thing that you're supposed to say to them is, hey, why don't you show me one? That's what you've probably heard before. Show them, give them your Bible and say, show me a contradiction. And usually they can't tell you anything or they don't have any alleged contradictions, which might work most of the time. But would you know how to answer someone who showed you an alleged contradiction of the Bible? And that's what we talked about in our small groups just now. Would you know how to answer someone if they showed you there is an error in the Bible? How would you answer a person who asks of you, how do you know that the Bible is God's word? How do you know? Most of us might turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Well, the Bible says that all scripture is given by God. So the Bible says that it's God's word. So that's how we know it's God's word. The Bible says so. And you're like, wait a minute. I don't know if you can use that logic. I don't really know if that works. You're saying that the Bible is inspired by God because it says so. What if I want to say I'm inspired by God because I say so? What makes that any different? Well, Bart Ehrman, as you just saw on the screen, has the following quote. He says, the copies are of the New Testament are not reliable. He says, these copies all differ, differ thousands of different places. There's about 400,000 errors in the New Testament overall. 400,000 errors. That's his count. So the interesting thing is, and some of you might hear that from your skeptic friends, 400,000 errors in the New Testament, you might automatically be discouraged. Here's this Bible scholar saying this, until someone comes along and says, do you know that there's only 180,000 words in the New Testament? How is it possible that there's 400,000 errors if there's only 180,000 words in the New Testament? Well, the way that he did his count was he just took one error and multiplied it times the the number of manuscripts. There are So if there's 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, he just multiplied what he saw as scribal errors. By this count, someone actually looked at Bart Ehrman's book that pointed out these errors, right? So Bart Ehrman has this book called Misquoting Jesus. In his first edition, he had 16 errors and sold 100,000 copies. So if you do the math, Bart Ehrman by his own count has 1.6 million errors in his book. And no one should believe a word in his book either. So how do we approach the Bible? How do we approach this question? Well, first of all, even if you can't answer a skeptic's question, it doesn't mean that you have to immediately give up your trust in the Bible. I'm not saying that you have to know every single answer that everyone has when they come and approach you and say, how do you know that the Bible is true? How do you know that the Bible is the word of God? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give an answer for everything because you naturally wouldn't assume That other things were deceiving you. Unless you had a good reason to doubt it. You wouldn't naturally believe that every single thing in the world. Was out to trick you or lie to you. Unless you have good reason to doubt. For example. Imagine you were living your life assuming that you were always dreaming. You wouldn't be able to live your life very well. You walk around and be like, what if I'm dreaming? What if this is a dream? Probably act strange in class. Jump around and make quacking sounds and stuff. Because you're like, what if this is a dream? It doesn't count anyway. Or... What if you were living your life assuming that labels on food were incorrect? What well, if this label is lying to me. Maybe some of you are actually like that. Because I used to be like that. Like checking the expiration date or worrying that someone's going to like inject it with poison. That's what I, w- I worried when I was like three. So if any of you have those genuine concerns, I'm with you. But you can't live your life always imagining that someone's poisoning your food. What if you had the propensity to doubt that the signs on the restrooms were incorrect? And you walk over to the bathroom and it says, men's room. And you're a guy and you're like, what if it's deceiving me? I don't know. You wouldn't be able to live your life very well if you doubted every single thing that came your way. So in the same way, we should assume the Bible is innocent until proven guilty. I think Christians often have a disposition to doubt things. If you're a Christian here today and you're like me, we have a propensity to want to doubt everything and not believe people. And I think it might be due to the fact of such examples like you believed once upon a time your parents would give you christmas presents and you would hope you would believe you would trust and then you're like and you walked down the stairs last christmas there were no christmas presents under the tree at all and your hopes are dashed and you and you just mope around and you cry and then your parents are like you're 24 years old you don't need presents like, I want presents So maybe you're afraid of being hurt. And so that's why you kind of keep things at bay. and You don't trust other people. And so I think Christians in the same way, they're afraid of getting their hopes up so they have a disposition to want to doubt things. But I also want to say, first of all, I think that's, you know, just an irrational belief that we don't have to hold. You can have confidence and know that the Bible is the word of God. But even if the evidence did weigh against you, it, that doesn't mean that you're not perfectly justified in holding your belief. So what I just said is, if there's evidence out there that someone presents to you and says, hey, all the evidence shows that the Bible is unreliable, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up trust in God. Why do I say that? Here's an example. Let's say that there was, you were convicted of murdering someone. And you were taken to court. You went to court and you know for a fact you didn't kill that person. But all the evidence weighs against you and the people want to, you know, the court, your own family, everyone says the evidence all leads saying that you, conv- you committed this crime. Now, you would be perfectly justified even if the evidence weighed against you to say, yeah, but I didn't. Yeah, but I know for a fact I didn't. You wouldn't have to change your belief. You would have to say, well, the evidence is against me. I guess I did commit that murder. No, you wouldn't have to do that because you're perfectly justified in holding that belief if you know that belief is true. So I'm saying, even if you're not sure, even if it seems like people are throwing things at you that you're not sure how to answer, it's okay to say, well, the Bible is innocent until proven guilty. So far, it's been faithful. Let's see what happens later. So don't be discouraged just because you have doubts. If you have doubts about the Bible, you have doubts about God's word, that's okay Just because you have these feelings, you say, well, am I really saved? That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a natural thing, I think. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about, you know, you might have rationale and says, my reason says to me when I go to the dentist's office and get my wisdom teeth taken out, my reason says the doctors aren't going to, you know, cut my head off. They're not going to like poke holes in my mouth while I'm not looking. That's what my reason says. But when he takes giant needles to my mouth, I get scared. So, even though your reason says, I should trust in the doctor, there's something within us, our emotions, that say, Yeah, but I'm kind of still scared. When I was first getting into rock climbing, I was still terrified of heights. Even though my reason said, I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die. I get on the wall, I'm like, Aah! I'm like shaking, and now I'm manly, and I don't do that anymore. But when I first started, I was very girly and I would scream. Sometimes I'd still scream, though. I have witnesses to that. But we don't need to talk about that. Or how I'm like a girl. Moving on. So I'm going to give you a simple way to know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So if you weren't sure today when you came here, how do I explain to my friends that the Bible is the word of God? I'm going to give you one simple way of remembering. And hopefully you will take that away from you tonight. Uh, Take take that away with you tonight. I have also, by the way, a bunch of notes that I'm going to hand to you after the study is over. So don't be worried if you don't get everything down. I'll give you some detailed notes. Anyway, so first of all, I'm going to list out the reasons, and then we're going to go through them one by one. Number one, God exists. Number two, Jesus is God. Number three, God cannot exist lie. God cannot lie. Number four, Jesus testified that the Bible is a soul-inspired word of God. Number five, the Bible we have today is the same Bible that the early church had. And number six, the Bible we have today is the inspired word of God. So we need to start with number one, God exists. We know this first of all with arguments. You can start with rational arguments like The cosmological argument, the ontological argument, the teleological argument, the argument from design, from the earth, from universe, from uh, morals, and there's all these different arguments philosophically that you could develop to prove that there is God. The contingency argument, why is there something rather than nothing, we're going to go through these arguments one by one as the year progresses, and I can guarantee you they're a lot more interesting than they sound, so don't worry. Um, But anyway... So you can go through philosoph- philosophical arguments or just the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. There's something inside of you that says there's something more to this world. There's something more than just the appearances. There's a reason why there's a longing in my heart for peace and for joy. It's because peace and joy really exists in the world that I can obtain. And God is the source of that peace and joy and goodness. So we start with God exists. God must exist. Number two, now if God exists, then we have to... We have to ask the question, who is God? And it's through uh, outside arguments, outside of the Bible, that we can actually prove that Jesus is God. You don't need the Bible to prove that Jesus is God. Although, the Gospels were written as a, a hist- in a h- historically reliable way. So that you don't have to question, well, the Bible's biased, or the New Testament's biased, or the Gospels are biased historians realize that the Gospels are historically reliable texts. And if they aren't, then we can't trust anything that we have that's from back in the day. We can't trust Plato's writings. How do we know that? Plato really wrote that. How do we know that Homer's Odyssey was written by Homer? Actually, we don't, we don't know that Homer's Odyssey was written by Homer. But how do we know that's in the original writings? Blah, blah, blah. And actually, we don't know that. But um, the Bible is the most and especially the New Testament, is a historically reliable document that even secular historians recognize. And even outside of the Bible, there are 39 or more sources outside of the Bible written within 150 years of Jesus' life that attest to more than 100 facts regarding Jesus' life, teachings, crucifixion, and resurrection. So people, even non-Christians, believe different facts about Jesus, that they all, they all agree on four different facts. Number one, that Jesus was a living person. Number two, that Jesus really was crucified. Number three, that Jesus was found, uh, his tomb was found empty by some of his women followers. And number four, that his disciples claim to have these visions or appearances or hallucinations of Jesus after he rose again from the dead supposedly. So how you deal with those facts, people deal with them differently and say, well, they must have been on drugs or something like that. But those are all four historical facts that historians, both Christian and non-Christian, agree upon. So you can conclude that Jesus is God even apart from the Bible. So if God exists, Jesus is God. Number three, God cannot lie. Because otherwise, how would you figure that out? Okay, God, God can't lie. How do you know? Because the Bible says so. So we can trust God's word because his word says that he doesn't lie that's also circular. So we can form an, a different argument to kind of find out what God is like. And through things like the ontological argument I kind of alluded to before, you know that God is the greatest conceivable good. If there is a good greater than God, then that would be God and not the one that we're thinking of. So God, by his nature, can't lie. Lie To lie is an imperfection of his character. And if he could lie, then he wouldn't be God and something else would be God. So get Dad, (laughs) dad god cannot lie that's a sign i have to slow down number four jesus testified that the bible is the soul inspired word of god so we know that god exists jesus is god god cannot lie jesus whatever he says must be true and he testified that the bible is the soul inspired word of god we know that through john 10 35 he says the word of god came and the scriptures cannot be broken he also said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. So Jesus himself attested that the scriptures are his own word. So number five, that leads us to believe, okay, if the original Bible that was around in Jesus' time was true, how do we know that we still have the same Bible? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus. How do we know that it's the same word of God? Well, we, have, we know the Old Testament is the same through the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls predate Jesus. And you can go see them. I actually saw them when I was in England for uh, my mission trip back in 2005. We went to the, the British Museum and we saw the manuscripts right in there. So you, that's how, one way you can testify and, and realize that the, New Test, the Old Testament you have now is the same that was around at Jesus' times. There's 19 copies of the book of Isaiah. We can know that the New Testament is the same as is today, as it was in Jesus' day, from the testimonies of the early church fathers. The early church was established shortly after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Within the first hundred years, these early church fathers were so obsessed with the Bible and the New Testament that they would quote it. In every single letter that they would write to each other, they would quote the New Testament. And in fact, just from... It's been said that there are enough quotations from the early church fathers that even if we did not have a single manuscript copy of the Bible, scholars could still reconstruct most of the New Testament today just from the writings. So even if we had no manuscripts, none of the 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, we could still reconstruct most of it just through the writings of the early church fathers. And that's how we can check it. You can go on Amazon, buy it for 300 bucks, writings of the early church fathers I'm sure none of you would want to do that but you could if you really wanted to have it in your collection and say wow it's the exact same new testament that I have so that leads us to number six it it follows inescapably that the bible we have today is the inspired word of God so let's talk about the meaning of inerrancy because that's a big word what does that mean Wayne Grudem says that it is a characteristic of God's speech even when spoken through sinful human beings that it is never false and that it never affirms error. The Bible says in Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should repent. So he says the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So inerrancy means that scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now let me give you examples of what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that approximations are errors. Like if the Bible gives, I, I forget where in the Bible, but it gives the number, uh, it's like building a boat or something, and it gives pi as, as just the number 3 instead of 3.14, whatever it is. And people said, ha, the Bible is an error because it rounded down. Well, if we go back to the meaning of inerrancy, that doesn't affirm anything that is not contrary to fact. Just like if I said to you, I live about one mile away from the church. None of you would come up to me and say, you liar! You live 1.2476 miles and go on and on. We don't expect everyone to have exact approximations when we're speaking in everyday language because it doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. It's a useful term. Also, it doesn't mean... That metaphors are errors. Metaphor is just a figurative description applied to a person or object. In Amos 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. Now some skeptics might say, women are not cows. Duh. Obviously, the Bible is in error thinking and being confused that women are the same things as cows, and they're not. Obviously, that's not what the Bible is trying to affirm. It's using a metaphor. It also doesn't mean that grammar are errors in the Bible. When you hear, thou shalt not kill, no one would go up to the, you know, a Bible scholar and say, well, you see, the Bible is in error because it says thou shalt, and obviously thou shalt is an incorrect way of using grammar. Or it has an apostrophe or something stupid. Obviously, that doesn't affirm anything that is contrary to fact. There's nothing untruthful about speaking in the language that the Bible is speaking to, in the context that Jesus was writing in. Now, what is a contradiction? Aristotle's law of non-contradiction says, one cannot say of, one cannot say of something that it is and that it is not in the same sense and in the same time. So let me give you an example. The following is not a contradiction. It is raining now. It is not raining now. The two statements, it is raining now and it is not raining now, is not a contradiction. Tell me why. You tell me why. Some raise your hand. Yes. Yes, Nick. No. If I said the exact same sentence right next to each other, uh, it is raining now, it is not raining now. Why is that not a contradiction? Exactly. When is now? If I say it is raining now and it's really not raining, it's not affirming anything that's to the truth. But if it's raining tomorrow and I say it is raining now... It could be raining now and it's fine to say those two things together but they have to be in the same time and in the same sense uh, or opposite of that. You can't put those things together if they're in the exact same time and in the exact same sense. So that's what it means. It would be a contradiction to say it is raining on October 21st and it is not raining on October 21st at the exact same time. That would be a contradiction. So Anytime you look at apparent contradictions, you have to look at the context in which it's written. You can't simply say, oh, a contradiction. So let's talk about some alleged errors in the Bible. Number one, is wisdom good or bad? Because the Bible says both. It says in Proverbs 3.13, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. But in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18, it says, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the problem is, how can one be happy when he finds wisdom if wisdom brings grief? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, the conclusion is, this is a misunderstanding. Proverbs is dealing with spiritual godly wisdom, whereas Ecclesiastes is dealing with worldly wisdom. You have to look at the context in which they're written. Proverbs is obviously talking about godly wisdom. Ecclesiastes talking about worldly wisdom. And that's why they can be two different things because they're not in the same sense. Number two, is the mustard seed really the smallest seed in all of the earth? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 31, Jesus said to them, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. Aha! Contradiction! Error! Because in recent discoveries in botany... We have found that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. Obviously, the Bible is in error and you should not believe anything inside of it, right? Well, first of all, I think if people are paying attention that much to botany, they probably shouldn't be alive. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. I didn't mean to offend any of you botanists. No. The conclusion is this is misunderstood. You can't assume, shh, you can't assume that when Jesus was talking to his disciples, that he had every seed in the world in mind when he said, yes, the mustard seed is the least of all seeds. You really think he was thinking of every single seed that they haven't even discovered yet? Probably not. Because imagine if he was referring to, you know, the chromium seed, I just made up a word, is the smallest seed in all of the earth. disciples say, what are you even talking about? Yes. He does, but who's he talking to? people that would have no idea what he's talking about for the purpose of illustration we have to realize that jesus was obviously only referring to the seeds that the jewish farmers would have had knowledge of it would make no sense for jesus to refer to something that jewish people themselves wouldn't have known of so number three at what hour was jesus actually crucified ah a contradiction mark chapter 15 verse 25 says now it was the third hour and they crucified him But in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, it says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. What does this mean? Two different times. Well, so the problem is basically how can he be crucified in the third hour and also at the sixth hour at the exact same time? Well, the conclusion is this is a misunderstanding because there's two different time frames. There's Jewish time and Roman time. Because you see, the, the Jewish day starts at dusk, whereas Roman time is a lot like our time. So when they have two different times, it's just because there's two different people speaking from two different standpoints. So there's no contradiction there. So, let's go on to scribal errors, if you know what that is. Well, because mankind has free will and is also capable of sin, we can't rule out that in the copying of the, the manuscripts of the Bible... Errors could have been made. So we're looking at humans. We know that humans are sinful. If humans are responsible to copy the Bible, isn't it possible that the, Bibles, the Bible that we have today would have errors? Just because, and this is how we would answer it, just because humans can make mistakes, it doesn't follow that we can't do anything free of error. Just because you and I sin, that doesn't mean that you are incapable of doing anything perfectly or without any errors for example it's completely possible for a person to write a paper to their professor or to their teacher without any spelling mistakes you're all capable of doing something with perfection in that regard so just because they can uh, make mistakes doesn't mean that they will make mistakes so it doesn't all it follows is the bible could have errors and then it's up to us to check are there any errors any scribble errors a perfect God must speak perfect words and should be able to perfectly protect them. And that's how we should view it. If God is perfect and that's how we know him and we know that he is good, don't you think it's possible that God would be powerful enough to preserve his word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth. The word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. So let's talk about scribal errors. Scribal errors are the copyist errors when they're copying the manuscripts of the Bible. They made, you know, punctuation marks, whatever. They screwed up. Let's examine some of these. Number one, did Solomon have 40,000 or 4,000 stalls? In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for chariots and 12,000 horsemen. But 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 25 says... And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for, for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So the problem is, is it 40,000 or 4,000? It can't be the other. Have you all lost your, your confidence in the Bible yet? I hope not because if you lost confidence over the amount of stalls that Solomon had, you're just really lame. So the conclusion is, this is a copyist error. So the scribe or copyist might have made a slip of the pen at some point in time, and it got copied. So, moving on to a more important one. What about the Kama Yohannium? Yes, yeah, so I said that correctly. The Kama Yohannium. Does anyone know what the Kama Yohannium is? Well, let me break it down for you. Shh. First, John chapter 5, verse 7 says, in the New King James Version, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The problem is, no Greek text in the first 1,300 years since Jesus has this verse in it. So for the first 1,300 years that the church was around, there was no 1 John 5, 7 in this rendering affirming the Holy Spirit. It says that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one you know, basically evidence for the Trinity. So it's not in the first uh, 1,300 years in any Greek text that we find. So what does this mean? This must mean that it is an error. And scholars have said that this is most likely a scribal error that was glossed over from the commentary margins. So when someone was copying it, trying to figure out what does this mean, commentaries are just comments on the Bible and what does this mean to them, So scribe must have wrote something like, oh, this is talking about the Holy Spirit and Jesus and God, the Father. They're all one. This is affirming the Trinity. Accidentally, that margin got copied into the verse itself and it got replicated. So this would lead some people to believe, well, maybe there are things added to the Bible. First of all, just because the common Yohannim doesn't really exist in the Bible... Doesn't, shouldn't give us discouragement that we can't trust our bible because number one it's one of the very only instances that this happens in the bible there are very few instances where we are in question over any part of the text and that verse in particular isn't even a question because scholars have looked at it and said okay 1300 years pretty sure it's not supposed to be in the bible the only difference is we're 700 years out of when it was placed in there by the catholic church that was like all right we'd like to have affirmation of the trinity let's put it in there but it doesn't affect doctrine because the trinity is uh the concept of the trinity is amplified elsewhere in the bible in genesis we see it in um you know when jesus was baptized there's different places in the bible that we know that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one in the Trinity. We don't need that specific verse to affirm it. So we have known that for a long time, and there's no question that belongs there. So it's not a theological issue either. Now, if you're worried, saying, okay, what about other verses that could have been added in there? F.F. Bruce, a scholar of the Bible, says, The variant readings about which any doubt remains affect no material question of historic fact... Or of Christian faith and practice. Bart Ehrman himself, who is the leaning skeptic of the Bible, says, but it doesn't follow that we don't know what it was really saying. He himself affirms that the Bible is, uh, in its meaning, the same as it was back in Jesus' time. He just likes to poke holes because he has different reasons uh, obviously, because he wants to get famous and write books that are controversial and make some money. There's different motivational reasons that Bart Ehrman could talk about that, but as a scholar, he says, yeah, but you can still trust the Bible. So, in conclusion, because we know that the Bible is God's word, we can approach it with confidence, knowing that the Lord can speak to us every single time that we read it. There aren't any errors in the original manuscripts of the Bible, and we know, looking through the copies, looking through how it was passed down to us, we can look at the early church fathers at what they wrote. And that's actually how we found out uh, more evidence against the Kama johannium is because the, the church fathers themselves, when they're discussing the Creed and discussing the Trinity, they didn't reference that verse at all. And obviously the, all they had to do is, oh, there's that verse in First John 5, 7, but they didn't. So that gives us good reason to believe that it's not in the Bible. But we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have the early church fathers Easy ways to remember that the Bible that you have today is the same and without error, without contradiction. And scribal errors and stuff, that's easily resolved because it's not a question where, like, okay, we know it's a scribal error. It's not one of those things where it's like, is it or is it not? What did God want us to know? Does he want us to know that there are 4,000 or 40,000? What did he want to say? So, in essence, God's word is always going to be preserved. His word will always go forth and will not return void because God Himself is powerful enough to preserve His Word, so you don't have to have any doubt about what it really says. When you approach the Bible, you don't have to question saying, "Oh my gosh, is this really the Word of God? Is this really not the Word of God?" You can know for a fact it is the Word of God, and Jesus does want to speak to you, if you would only open it up. You know, the other day I was reading in, uh, I was Wednesday service. You know, I I never encourage people to randomly flip flip two passages because I think that's just mysticism and weird. But it was one of those days where like, Lord, I just pray that you just speak to my heart. So I randomly flipped to Psalm 119, which figures because it's the middle of the Bible. But it says in verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word saying, when will you comfort me? And in the end it says, revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Those things don't happen in any other book there's those times where the Lord just speaks to you and he just ministers to your heart and you're just like, that's exactly what you needed, you know? You don't get that from reading dictionaries. I don't know why you read a dictionary to begin with, but you won't get that from the Hunger Games. like, Lord, speak to me through the Hunger Games. Katniss said, no. It's just not going to happen. And if it does happen, please tell me because I would love to know that you based some aspect of your life on the Hunger Games. That'd be ridiculous. But we know that the Lord speaks through his word and his word is living and powerful, able to pierce between the bones and marrow, able to discern between the matters of the heart, able to minister to our hearts, encourage us, lift us up. But that's another Bible study for another day. So let's pray.